Nobody wants to see your child's report card. Keep it to yourself. You can brag about your kid. Don't don't bring no chi- no child's report card to your workplace. Stop it. Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast that gives you news you can trust for the culture. I'm your co-host, Shauna Pinnock, social media director at The Grio. And I'm your co-host, Jerry Keith Gaynor, managing editor at The Grio. And this week we're asking, Dear Culture, how has your childhood village shaped you into the adult you are today? Let me know what's on your mind this week. Well, this past Sunday was Easter Sunday. If you're a Christian, um, we might celebrate it. And I want to put Donnie McClurkin on the prayer list uh, because he was recently on a recent episode of TV One's Uncensored. And he talked about him feeling like he'll be alone for the rest of his life because of his struggle with his sexuality. So we'll take it back. For those who don't know, Donnie McClurkin, famous gospel singer, Grammy award-winning artist. Um, He wrote a a piece around about probably 15 years ago, maybe more, where he openly talked about being molested as a child and talked about his attraction to men. um, And he spoke out against homosexuality, calling it a sin and said that he has been able to essentially deliver himself from homosexuality or at the very least suppress it. And so now in this new interview on TV One, he's now letting us know that uh, because he doesn't have, apparently he has struggles connecting with women. He doesn't know how to love a woman, doesn't know how to be with a woman. And because of that, he will likely be alone for the rest of his life. That really resonated with me because I grew up in the church. My dad was a minister. I've talked about my story a lot on this podcast. Call it what it is, you're gay. You choose to suppress your identity as a gay man, your sexuality. Um, you rather suppress that than live a happy life where you can love another man and he can love you back. And, it's, and I used to have really strong feelings about Donnie McClurk and a lot of gay people in the community have felt ways about him because of his stance. But watching that clip really made me just empathize with him. I really... I mean, it's really, it's sad that the church has people living unfulfilled lives, living miserable lives, suppressing who they are for, for what? To appease the church, to, appe- to, to, to and, and this idea that you can't challenge what, what God is. If we say God is love, if you follow Jesus Christ, um, the church seems to have a very limited idea of what love is and what God is. And one, I think God is so much bigger than your sexuality. If you believe that you are a spiritual being, I mean, who cares what I, about who I have sex, who I have sex with? Who cares if I wanna identify as some other gender? If my spirit is really what matters, if love is really what matters, why does it matter who you love? Why does it matter how you choose to show up in this physical world? And so there, I always have a lot of contradictions when it comes to a lot of Christians and their positions on sexuality. But it also made me think about Zaya Wade and seeing young people uh, owning who they are at a really young age, and these debates that have been happening around, can children choose who they, who they, who they are at 13, 14 years old? And you know, thank God we see the new generation coming out much younger than I, my generation and the generations before. Um, and they're so much more liberated to just be who they are. And people like Donnie McClurkin, you know, they come from a different generation. They're indoctrinated to believe that being gay is still a sin. You know, I'm a Christian. 
I'm, I am a believer. I'm very spiritual. I believe in God. I pray every day. And I don't feel a conflict with my sexuality. I think that God made me gay and he wanted me to be gay. Being gay makes me, uh, ha makes me that much more special in the world. I wish one, the church made a, a safer environment for us to exist and, and be who we are so that Donna McClurkins in the world don't have to feel like they have to suppress who they are. Just imagine that, what a happy life a Donnie McClurkin could have if he just simply loved himself and trusted God enough to know that God made you exactly as you are. But it's, um, it's, it's, I know that this conversation is always really, you know, it's a touchy subject. People feel how they feel. And oftentimes people don't want to uh, parlay in these conversations around people's faith because people should be, be able to believe what they want to believe. But for me, you know, that belief system or that, that stance, that interpretation of the Bible is uh, violent toward me and people like me because it makes it that much more difficult for us to go to places of worship and, 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 be, and be safe there. It makes it difficult because the church has such a strong hold still on how society views LGBTQ plus people. And we have to face uh, ridicule and violence in the streets, just simply being who we are. Um, and as you can see through this, this example of Donnie McClurkin, you're also seeing people strip themselves of their happiness because of what people believe about what God. Um, <clears throat> so I have a lot of thoughts on this. And one thing, how I have to open it up is saying, I too am a Christian. I believe in God. I pray, I go to church, I pay my tithes, all those things. And I am the first one to tell you that Christians get on my damn nerve. I find a lot of us to be incredibly hypocritical. Um, you don't get to pick and choose with what sin is, you know, is, is bigger or, or less than or anything like that. You don't get to choose. If you're going to say, oh, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong. All three of those things have to be wrong all the time and you can decide how you, how you want to live. I think it frustrates me to know that there are people walking around acting as though that they have a hell to condemn somebody to. You have no power to do so. And it actually really makes me sad to see anyone pretending to be something and someone that they're not for the sake of other hypocritical ass people. Let me tell you something. My God is more powerful than who I choose to smash. I'm sorry. My God is more powerful than who you choose to tell me that it's wrong for me to smash whoever the heck it is that I want to smash. It's none of your business. And that's really the problem. Christians don't know how to mind their own damn business at the end of the day. Um, I think it's also, it's one of those things of like, this is why I love, love, and I don't even listen to his music like that, but Lil Nas X, let me tell you something. That Montero video is a good gay ass time and I'm here for it. And the reason why, you know, and I know everyone's like, oh, he, he playing with God. First off, God wasn't in there. I, I didn't see God. Did you see God? I saw Satan. So, <laughs> okay, time out. Sorry, y'all. I had to, I was having a Teddy Riley internet situation. So I'm pick my point back up. <laughs> but if, you, if you're watching us on YouTube and you notice that I've changed up where I was, that's the reason why. Try to give you some good quality. But anywho, uh, back to my original point. So let's talk about Lil Nas X and why he is just 
pretty much everything. I love him. Um, at this point, it's like his latest video, uh, Montero, Call Me By My Name, and just watching how, listen, the heteros and the Christians are very upset, Jaren. They are, they are livid. And I always find that so interesting because it's like, first and foremost, people are out here talking about, oh, well, you know, he's playing with God. Again, I didn't see God in that video. I saw the, I saw Satan. I saw the devil. So I, I, I did you, was he twerking on Jesus? I didn't see that, but that's fine. And for us to act as though we, any kind of like pagan or <laughs> religious anything has not been frequently used in videos is that it's a straw man's argument. And it's actually really freaking annoying because at the end of the day, what it is, it's, it's thinly veiled homophobia. You're upset that the little gay boy decided, you know what, you were trying to send me to hell anyway, kiss my ass um i'm going to go and guess what how i'm gonna get there i'm gonna get on this pole i'm gonna twirl on down it and i'm gonna twerk on the devil why because if that's what it if that's what it is then that's just what it is you all are upset that you don't get to control that narrative you all are upset that you you and your words and your sky daddy and your your age-old text written a 50 million times <laughs> <laughs> with all its different versions and all of its different uh, uh, interpretations. And a lot of it is BS and a lot of it is, a lot of it is, is toxic. To me, the Bible is supposed to be used as almost a self-help book. I'm sorry. I'm, I, I personally, I personally can't live every single thing that is in that book. That's not for me. And, you know, maybe that makes me a bad Christian. Guess what? I don't care. Because me and my God, we're good. I don't have to be good with you. And that's what I want for Donnie McClurkin to learn. You don't have to be good with nobody. Anybody else's thoughts, feelings, opinions matters nothing. And the only relationship that you should be concerned about is the relationship with you and your God. How does your God feel about you? And the fact that Donnie McClurkin is still on this earth breathing life tells me that your God loves you. Your God is still giving you an opportunity to feel that love and to fully embrace that. Yo, go get you a man, Donnie. It's fine. I believe this was in color purple. God loves sinners too, okay? I believe Miss Shug said that. And honestly, I'm really sick and tired of us acting as though gay sex <laughs> or gay attractions is a sin, but just smashing all willy nilly is not I, that, that, no, I'm sorry. I refuse to believe that. I refuse. Um, so yeah, prayers up for Donnie McClurkin. I know he is a very problematic, um, fellow. Now who my prayers are not going up for? Let me get into my little, my little spiel and I'll keep this real quick, real, real quick. Derek Chauvin is a murderer. Derek Chauvin deserves to go straight to hell. Derek Chauvin is a racist. Derek Chauvin is a cruel, unusual, despicable, downright disgusting human being. Nine minutes and I believe 32 seconds, you sat up there and laid your knee on the neck of a bound, prone man, unconscious, and you smirked. And then you have this wet, first and foremost, I, what I love to see, I haven't been watching the trial like that. I really can't. Um, 
I, I, I just, I really can't uh, <laughs> because to me, that's, that's just trauma that I'm not willing to bring into my life. So there, so therefore I allow clips to happen. So I've been seeing, you know, bits and pieces. And quite frankly, it looks like Derek Chauvin is being hung out to dry. There are, you know, everyone from the police chief to paramedics and witnesses and everything else who are like, no, he, he, he killed George Floyd and he had no reason to. There was, there was nothing to deal with that. And I'm really sick and tired of, and it was expected, but I'm really sick and tired of watching this defense team try to put George Floyd on trial. Cause you know what? At the end of the day, George Floyd can't be on trial. You know why? Because he's dead. And you know why he's dead? Because Derek Chauvin put his knee and suffocated him. I'm sorry, you're not gonna tell me fentanyl killed him. You're not gonna tell me he had like a sporadic heart attack or anything like that. No, he was deprived of oxygen. And how was he deprived of oxygen? Because a police officer, a person who my tax dollars pay to protect and serve me killed him. God help this country if that fool gets off. That's all I'm gonna say. Yeah, I... I've, I've been watching the trial because I can't not watch it because I work in the news. Um, but it is, it is very deeply traumatic. It's actually more traumatic for me during the trial than it was during the protest last year. Over and over, they're playing the videos. They're playing videos we haven't seen before. And to your point, Shauna, yes, I think, what, I think the takeaway for everyone watching this trial is that Derek Chauvin knew exactly what he was doing. I don't know how any person in their right mind would think that a person's not gonna die putting your knee on someone's neck for that long. Handcuffed. And more importantly, if, if he is not found guilty to your point, yes, we, I mean, the city of Minneapolis is not going to be okay. We know what will happen if justice is not seen in that case, because this was egregious. This was, this was, this was bad. I mean, he was fired for this offense. Let's be clear. He was fired. The police chief has even said that he grossly um, violated police uh, policies. So I don't think that he's gonna be let off. I think he'll be found guilty. Um, but yes, let's, let's say our prayers, not just for this country and for that city, but for his family um, and black America, because to the point of representative Ilhan Omar who recently spoke out on this, it is deeply traumatizing for black America to, to, to witness this trial. Um, but I hope it stands as a reminder to the rest of America that this is real. This is happening almost every day. Uh, and it's time to finally see justice. We've been, we've been seeing this uh, year after year after year of seeing police officers get off for murdering unarmed, innocent Black people. And if we don't see justice this time, it's not going to be good. Good luck. Uh, but speaking of Black America and all of our, you know, fun trauma, uh, let's get into the uh, today's show, which, you know, ultimately, I mean, Jerry, you and I are both childless, whatever, but, <laughs> and clearly there's no manual to parenthood and obviously raising kids is difficult. Listen, honestly, parenthood looks like the ghetto. I, I don't know how y'all do it. Good luck to y'all. Thank you. Uh, but I think there's definitely a different responsibility that comes with raising Black children. And I mean, we know that Black kids have it harder in society. And sometimes the pressure of knowing such, you know, such crap that we have to deal with and the adverse effects of 
all of the, 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 whole, like, the whole idea and the culture of blackness and how it's perceived in this country, it definitely has, a, has an effect on how we as a culture parent. So growing up in a household where we have the added burden of being our best selves at all times, definitely creates a chase for perfection that's not always attainable. Uh, let's get into it. So Shauna, I'm really happy we're having this deep dive conversation about childhood and rearing children. Uh, for Black children in particular, uh, well, one, I think it's important that we set the tone that your childhood really does shape who you become as an adult. It affects how you, how you show up in the world. It, it, it impacts the way that you interact with the world. And for Black children in particular, for Black people, um, it's like an extra added burden because we all have heard the, the famous quote that you have to work twice as hard to be half as good uh, as in comparison to white America. And while I never had that specific, those specific words spoken to me from my parents, it was definitely clear that how they reared me uh, had that in mind. And they focused so much on being really good in your academics and getting good grades and um, I mean, I can, I think, I think back now I would come home from school and my dad would not let me do anything without coming in straight into the living room to do my homework. And I would sit at the table and I would do my homework and I couldn't watch TV or anything until I did it. And it was like, he was like a drill sergeant. He was a, a veteran. So I got that, that drill sergeant uh, dad and it, he was tough on me. And I took that with me the rest of my formative years. And I think I still hold on to that, wanting to be perfect um, and making, wanting to be just as good um, because we learned really early that the, the world for black, black children is very different from the world for white children. And it's the same for adulthood. I wanna know, have you had those, that, that famous quote said to you and how has that impacted your childhood and your adulthood? <laughs> uh, I absolutely did. Um, I've talked about my parents. I basically talk about my, about my parents like every damn episode. But yes, being the American born child of a Jamaican man, Guyanese woman who, you know, immigrated to this country and were very adamant that Black excellence was expected. Um, now, granted, I was raised an only child. So I mean, I was going to go for black excellence regardless anyway. I'm 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 that person, you know, whatever. Like I'm I'm a person who my mom and dad actually were just telling me this <laughs> this story about I think I was like in second grade, no, first first or second grade and we would do like weekly spelling tests um in for school and I was very adamant about I'm going to get not just 100, but I want that 105, that extra 5 points. Uh and I would like basically require my parents when we would walk, you know, from the subway and all the way the entire subway ride to my school. I'm like requiring my parents test me on these words and, you know, things of that nature. I think it's 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 something that it has a lot of pros and a lot of cons um, pros in the sense of you are always aiming to, you know, do better, be better, surround yourself with people who are like-minded, um, but definitely cons because it permeates beyond just your childhood. Um, you know, 
the black the burden of black black excellence is so real and i think where i've seen it the most and it actually kind of brings us into a conversation about imposter syndrome um has definitely been you know in the workplace and i think we even our producers went and gave us some information prior to the show. I think the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, like actually like specifically said like black workers receive extra scrutiny from bosses, which can lead to worse performance reviews, lower wages and even job loss. And I have been that person, you know, I've been that person where I'm like, I don't understand how I am doing what I think is not even just necessary for my job, but going above and beyond my job. And then here goes Jared and Jake and, and Susie Q, you know, talking about juice and celery <laughs> on the, you know, during work hours and their performance reviews are better. They're not being scrutinized. Like here I am going off to lunch and I've taken a 50 minute, not even 60 minutes. I've taken a 50 minute lunch, but after apparently like 40 minutes, my boss is asking around the team. Oh, have you seen Shauna? Have you seen, I didn't skip town. Where do you think I'm going? Like, why are you up on me? Like, it's not necessary. I know my job and I know what I'm doing. Um, but this is where this is again where it gets to one of those pros. I think had I stayed in those kind of work situations in which I was the only one or very few black folks, I probably would have internalized a lot of that so much more. Um, but because I because I do know how I work my ass off, you know, um, which is funny because I'm I, I also tell people I am chronically lazy but lazy in <laughs> lazy in the sense of oh you know i like to work smarter not harder if i don't have to do something i damn sure i'm not going to but matter of fact i got him i got in my bag on twitter just i think last week where i was like you know what i'm really effing good at my job like i am i'm really effing good at my job and that's not something that i would have said three four years ago it would have been like, oh yeah, you know, I, I I know what I'm doing. I, you know, yeah, little little humble brag. Screw all that. I am the ish, plain and simple. Period. Point blank. Um, and I think knowing that there's this idea of black excellence that has been instilled in me from the very beginning. Yes, sometimes it can be very, very, very exhausting. Sometimes you can feel like, why am I working all this extra stuff? Like, why am I putting all this extra effort just to not even get to the same level as these people are? But you know what? What that has taught me was I don't even want to be at their table. I don't want to seat at their table. I don't want to pull up a box to their table. None of that. You know what I am going to do? I'm going to create my own table. I'm going to have my own chairs. I'm going to invite my people to have their own chairs. And guess what? My table's going to be popping. It's basically about to be like, if you go to brunch and you see like the black side of the brunch table and you see the white side of the brunch table, the white side of the brunch table is out here eating bland ass yogurt and bland ass potato salad. But you know what the black side of the table got we got uh we got making a stallion tunes we got catfish and cornbread we got chicken wings and waffles and we're having a good old time and guess what your white ass is gonna still sit up here over here and try and tiptoe try and get a little bit of my mimosa no go on about your business and that's it um so yes and i think one thing that i definitely have to say has helped create that that form of confidence in me 
all of that most certainly has to go to Spelman College. It has to go to HBCUs just in general. Yo, we are the ish, period. I'm sorry. My vice president of the United States of America is a Howard University graduate. She's a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. You know why? Because she has always been surrounded by Black freaking excellence, period. So, I mean, yeah, it has some good, some good and some bad, Jaren. <laughs> it definitely has its goods. I think, I think for me, the, the, the downsides to this idea that we have to work really hard to have Black excellence is that one, I have this issue with like American culture and just, just like really focusing so much on work culture, like how much you can use your brain and use labor to make money. Um, and I think that who we are as human beings is so much more expansive than, than what we can achieve. And it takes away from the other part of living, which is just to experience and experience who you are as a person experiencing others. And also I wanted to touch on um, the black excellence component. When you think about how hard you have to, how excellent you have to be just to be in the same space as mediocre white people. Um, and I think about the Barack Obamas and Beyonce, they have to be so exceptional. Even just people who might, you know, work in corporate America, work in, in the office. It's really exhausting to have to, and I can speak for myself working at Fox News uh, and even, uh, even in grad school at Columbia, being one of a few, if not the only black person and working really hard to prove myself um, and then you look around to your peers and it's like, they're not working as hard. You know, they don't, they're, they're not as, as smart as, as one might think. And when you look at the way that society is structured in America and it's really unfortunate because I think that it really, it denies us the ability to just be our full selves. We have to always be on, always be perfect, always execute. Um, you can't make any mistakes because it might, it might be the one thing that prevents you from moving forward. And we are always going to have this struggle until we start to really break the system down. Because I love the idea that, that you spoke about having your, creating your own table. And there are black people doing that today. And I love that that's happening. But the reality is that white people still hold the keys. And there are a lot of spaces, even with the power that we do have within our community, there are, there's a lot of access we just, we still don't have. And for white people, they, 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 there's a certain, um, there's a certain perception or a, a certain type of black person that they allow into the space. And so the question becomes, how do we break, how do we break, break these systems down so that we can create a whole new system? And I really want to talk about this idea of imposter syndrome, because I've, I've dealt with this my entire life. I still do. And I wanted to kind of like read more on it. Like what are some things that parents do to children that create this, this idea, this, this concept of being having imposter syndrome. And something that I saw on psychology today was that parents who kind of give these very general superlatives to children, like you're so great, you're the best in the world. They actually say that that actually does the opposite that it makes the child feel like they have to be perfect. Um, and when they, when they, if it's not perfect, they hide their accomplishments, they downplay themselves. So parents aren't perfect. I think it's important to note that. I think that even my parents, they, they meant well, they, they encouraged me. 
Um, and they often told me how great I was. But this article that I read in Psychology Today actually says that by giving children these very generic superlatives, like you're so great, you're the best, it actually does the opposite, that it doesn't really uh, foster what we, what we this, the positive affirmation that we think it does. In fact, it makes them feel like they have to be perfect as opposed to giving children very specific compliments. Like you did so well um, organizing uh, the crayons, well, good job. They, they encourage you to do go specific because if you if you make it too generalized, a child interprets that somehow as they have to always be generally just perfect. And I wanna read it verbatim. It says the behavior of hiding failures or even successes that aren't good enough starts to create a feeling of inauthenticity in the child. When a child always shows only their best and highest everything else, that child will start to feel like a fraud. And it, I read that and that just like hit me like a ton of bricks because me and my therapist talk about some of this pretty often and they make the distinction also between um, perfectionism and imposter syndrome. And the difference is that people who are perfectionists, they won't even try to do something unless they know they're gonna do it perfectly. Whereas people who have imposter syndrome, they actually have a track record of being successful and being, and being achievers but they yet they still downplay those achievements because they don't believe that they actually belong. And I think so many black people can relate to not, not belonging in any space that they're in. And even when you make it into the rooms after working hard and, and, and getting your accolades, you can also feel like, did I really earn it? You know, and I think that there's so much pressure put on us, but particularly black children to, to think of, not just think about, not just think about, not just think about being a child, but have to also think about a child in a white world and this, this othering that always happens. And I don't know, I don't, I don't know how, I don't know how, I mean, obviously we can, we can make steps to improve this in our communities by raising our children differently. Um, I think it's really important to to identify your child's weaknesses and help them work, work through those weaknesses with them versus just telling them that they're perfect. And I remember back when I changed my major to English and my dad was like, what are you gonna do with an English major? And he wanted me to be a doctor, be a psychologist. You know, like we, I think black parents often want their children to be like these great high paying, uh, have these high paying jobs. Versus, you know, following your heart and what you actually want to do. And I remember going to my mother and I wanted to be a singer. A lot of people don't know that I can actually sing. A little bit. Not, uh, and I wanted... No, no. Jerry could blow, okay? <laughs> um, thank you for that. Um, but I went to my mom and I was like, Mom, I want to be a singer. And she was like, okay. Um, but think about some, some, something else you could actually, you can be. And I'll never forget that conversation because from that point on, it was like a mental switch. I was like, all right, she, I'm not good enough to be a singer. That's how I interpret it as a child. And so things that you don't, you don't mean to cause harm on your children, but if you don't encourage them properly, um, it can have long lasting effects. And I'm not saying that I think I would have been uh, a famous recording artist and winning Grammys, 
But maybe I would have pursued something differently and maybe I would have been a songwriter because I'm a writer. Who knows? I could still be. Um, life, is, life is not over. Um, but it's a perfect example of the little small things that you can say or, or not say that can have your child growing up to be an adult who's second guessing themselves or, or doesn't have a full under, understanding about who they are in this world. So I'll give you a perfect example. I, I do not take criticism well. And it took me a smooth year and a half to uncover where that comes from. Um, as I said, my parents are two Caribbean immigrants <laughs> from uh, you know Jamaica and Guyana and always been very affectionate with me. However, when my mother and my father would feel as though I wasn't living up to their standards of excellence, I would typically get compared to other people, other children. Case in point, like we would have three report cards per semester. We had two semesters and we'd have three report cards per semester. The first report card, you have to go, you know, extra hard because it parent teacher conferences is happening, right? The, se the second semester you had to, I didn't really care because I was like, this is a BS report card. I like, I was, I, I would purposefully not do homework assignments and not, you know, participate in like gym class or anything else because who the hell cares? It's the middle of the damn seat. It's the middle of the semester. No one cares. And then the end, the third report card is when I would pick it back up again. And here I am in my 90s and 95s and, you know, exceptional behavior and blah, blah. And that was typically because, oh, at the end of the semester was either going to be that around Christmas break or it would be around summertime and I'm not about to screw up my summer vacation just because I wanted to, you know, F off. Second report card would come, my grades would start to fall. My father would be on some, my boss talks about her son and she came with his report card, which also black parents, stop doing that. Nobody wants to see your child's report card. Keep it to yourself. You can brag about your kid. Don't, don't bring no, chi no child's report card to your workplace. Stop it. But, you know, she would bring her, her kid's report card and she's showing it off. And, oh, my son is just doing so well and blah, blah, blah. And then my father would come home and tell me, you know, you know how embarrassed I was that I couldn't even uh, brag about my picnic because, you know, he would be relentless about that. I would get compared to everybody. If it was somebody else doing better than me at that particular time, Oh, yes. My parents had a, like I said, they were very affectionate people. When they felt that I was screwing up, that affection, that love stopped. So when I, like my grades were screwed up, don't expect a hug. And it was very, ugh, like it, it was, it, it was just a cold war all of a sudden in the house. And then, so here I am again, having to pick it back up and, you know, work extra hard and blah, blah, blah. And then we'd have like a good three to six month period of where I am, I'm just perfect. And I'm getting all the love, I'm getting all the attention, all the affection, all the, all of these things. But the moment I screwed up, all of that stopped. That's been a, a lifelong struggle for me. Um, and, you know, and feeling and ultimately equating in my mind that if I'm not being perfect, if I'm not striving towards excellence in every single thing that I do, that that somehow means that I'm not deserving of love. So I love my mom and my daddy. I know, and they listen to this show. So, I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't need, I don't need an apology or nothing. You already done did the damage. I mean, but <laughs> I do have a brother, a prodigal son returned. Um, and my brother has four kids and I, um, 
found myself doing the exact same thing that my parents used to do to me, to my niece and my nephews, my youngest niece and nephews. And when they were screwing up in school, all of a sudden, Auntie Shauna, I'm sorry, Christmas gift. Oh, no, 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 no. Like they would come to the house and I would just, I would be cold to them. And it wasn't until a therapy session with, you know, and I was like, oh crap, I'm doing that to these kids. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> like, oh no, 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 no. I, and I had to correct that within myself and do something that, you know, quite frankly, my parents never did for me. And that was apologize to my niece and my nephews. Um, and I think black parenthood and black parenting, that's something that I, I truly hope that I'm able to hold on to if and or when ever I do have children is being able to first off, not, first off, not even have certain behaviors occur, but if they do acknowledge it, correct it, and also apologize. I think that it, it and, and apologize, not just with the words, but apologize with your actions. I have a, the opposite experience as a child in terms of comparison, because I was the kid that other parents compared to, like, I was the model child. I was like, the person who got the good grades, the person who was well-behaved. Oh, you're the one I was hating, okay. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it's also not healthy being, being that child either. Um, because that made me feel like I had to always be on point. Um, I was trying to hide my sexuality, so I knew that I couldn't be gay. So I, the the one thing that got me attention or got or was a distraction from my sexuality was how good I was and how smart I was. Essentially, overcompensating uh, for the fact that I'm really struggling. I'm really struggling with the, with my identity, and the only identity that seems to uh, be accepted is this model child and so as an adult i still struggle with like being my full authentic self as a gay man and to your point i also had that uh, that inability to accept criticism mm -hmm. um because i was so used to just being praised for being great then <laughs> <laughs> i get into a relationship and he's like um, do you know you, did you know, do you know you do this and you do that, um, that you actually are maybe a little selfish and I just didn't, I didn't see that in myself until someone held the mirror up and was like, yeah, you got some things going on here. And that's what led me to therapy because I, there was just a lot of things I just didn't know about myself. I had not learned about myself because I didn't have parents who were like, you know, really being straight up with me. I'm, I'm afraid that if I love on them too much they'll be too clingy if i'm too hard on them they might you know be fragile and and i might traumatize them and that is why it's really important for black people to take your butts to therapy um because i see so much of this in my family and other families and so much of it is rooted in not having conversations i don't know if i want to be a parent i think i would be an okay parent but um but it, it has to be a, a healthy balance for me, one thing that therapy taught me was how to humanize my parents. So they're still my mom and my daddy, but I look at them as their whole full selves, their whole fallible, <laughs> you know, just flawed selves. Um, and also understanding that they have so much of their own trauma and stuff that they really haven't worked out themselves um, that unfortunately made its way in their rearing of me. 
my mother has this thing and she still says it and I've been trying to get her as a therapy to, you know, figure this out. But my mother has this, her own saying of like, you know, it's always the people, it's always the people closest to you who hurt you the most. And she's always like that. And she also has this other saying of like, you don't get to attach to people, places, to people, places, or things. I mean, in my player days, you know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm no, I was a savage. Why? Because I'm not getting attached to you like that. You know what I mean? Like, no. And I'm not letting you get super close because my mama always told me it's the people closest to you that can hurt you the most, you know, all of that crazy stuff. Listen, man, my advice at the end of the day, black parents, take yourselves to therapy, figure out like what your triggers are, figure out, I mean, you know, you don't want to blame your mommy and daddy for everything. You grown. I get it. But sometimes they're the root cause of a lot of the stuff. <laughs> and it's not blaming them necessarily. It's understanding how their behaviors impacted you and how it continues to impact you. And you have to take a moment and really unpack and, and, and recognize, is that the same exact thing that you want to pass on to your kids who didn't ask to be here and who are relying on you to teach them the ways of the world. Uh, you know, let's just do better, man. <laughs> I think the moral of the story is that we all want our children to flourish, but we have to be mindful that what we do and what we say can have long lasting impacts on us as adults. And you can look no further than your own life and your own childhood um, for evidence. And it's really important that we just continue to lead with empathy when raising children and to just save the tough love for when it's actually necessary. We want to remind our listeners to support your local Black businesses and donate to your local organizations and religious institutions. The business that we will highlight this week is V-Jove Design. V-Jove Design is a boutique graphic design firm committed to creating effective branding solutions. It started with four people passionate about designing and storytelling, and their mission is solving clients' problems creatively and producing designs that captivate audiences. Visit their website at vjove.com. That's V-E-J-O-V.com. Thank you for listening to Dear Culture. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. And of course, please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments. We love those to podcast at thegrio.com. The Dear Culture podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Talusma and co-produced by Sunda Sasan, Brenda Alexander, and Antonio Thompson. See you next week.